So the most difficult part of every attribution study is always almost the first step, which is we have done this study and all the studies that we have done with world weather attribution, we do because people are affected by flooding, by inundation, or be it through impacts on agriculture or food insecurity or something that affects society. But from that, you need to go back to something that is actually happening in the climate that you can measure with observed weather data and with climate models. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Joseph Mikett talks with Dr. Freddie Otto, a leading expert in the field of climate attribution, which measures how climate change directly affects weather events. Freddie is a senior lecturer in climate science at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College. Her main research interest is on extreme weather events, such as droughts, heat waves, and storms, and understanding whether and to what extent these are made more likely or more intense due to climate change. Freddie is also the co-lead of the World Weather Attribution, an international effort to analyze and communicate the possible influence of climate change on extreme weather events. Given the interest in weather events in the United States and globally, we thought it would be great to bring her on to talk about her work and some of the recent studies she has done. So here's Joseph to lead the conversation with Dr. Freddie Otto. Freddie, I'm really excited to have you on our podcast today. I think the research that you're doing with colleagues is really interesting and subtle, and I'm I'm really looking forward to being able to explore it uh, for our audience. So thank you for joining us. I am a little bit jealous of your research because you are doing in a formal way what I find myself doing all the time. If I'm at a cocktail party or I'm riding the, the city bus and I tell anybody that I work on climate and energy issues, One of the things that I'm constantly asked is, to what extent climate change is going to ruin everything or is driving crazy changes in the weather? And I'm never able to like satisfactorily answer that question. But it seems like over the last few years, the ability of our colleagues in the scientific world to start answering questions of what effect is climate change having on the weather extremes, at least, that people experience and recognize has really improved. What is your sense of the the last five years? And if you could help our listeners kind of understand the the role of attribution science or the the advances in attribution science, I think that'd be a great place to start our conversation. Okay, yeah. I'm also often asked that question, and I'm not sure I can provide an answer that people really find satisfactory because ideally, well, I usually get asked the question, was this climate change? And then they would like to have a yes or no answer. And that's, of course, not the kind of answer you can give, because ultimately, every extreme weather event or every weather event, extreme or not, it has multiple causes. So there's always a role to play just of the chaotic natural variability of the weather system. There are influences from things like La Nina or El Nino, so these large scale ocean and atmosphere patterns that that especially in tropical climates influence the weather. But climate change can alter the likelihood and intensity of extreme weather events. And so that is the question that we are aiming to answer in attribution is whether and to what extent a particular extreme weather event has been made more or less likely or more or less intense because of climate change. And I think the last five years, we have made huge progress. The idea has been around for about 15 or almost 20 years now. And the basic idea hasn't changed much to actually have useful tools to do it and be able to assess the confidence in our answers has improved dramatically. 
Well, one of the real innovations seems to be that the work you're doing with the World Weather Attribution Program sort of makes these assessments in a much faster timescale than we might have done before and about individual events. So maybe a good place to dive in is like in an example. You've just published an assessment on the website for this heavy rainfalls that occurred over the Northern Hemisphere summer in Pakistan. Incredibly damaging event, caused a lot of flooding, human suffering, economic damage. What role did you find climate change may have played in that weather event? And maybe to start with, why would climate change be a suspect when we're trying to understand what caused such a heavy rainfall event? Yeah, so with heavy rainfall, it's quite easy to see why climate change would be a suspect because a warmer atmosphere, which we do have now, uh, it's already 1.2 degrees warmer than it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and that's the warmest since humans exist. And a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor, and that ultimately needs to come out of the atmosphere as rainfall. So you would expect in a heavy rainfall event, the intensity of the rainfall to be larger in a warmer world. But of course, that is just the warming. There's another way of how climate change can affect weather, and that is by changing or affecting the atmospheric circulation. So that is where weather systems develop and how they move. And this second effect always acts together with the warming effect, but it can go in the same direction. So you have on the one hand more rainfall because of the warming, but you also get more weather systems that are conducive to rainfall. So you would get a large increase in rainfall, but they can also work in opposing directions. So if you don't get weather systems that lead to rain, then you will not get an increase in heavy rainfall completely independent of what the, the warming effect is. And that's why we need to look at particular regions and a particular seasons to know what exactly the role of climate change is. And so that's what we have done for these Pakistan studies. So walk us through how this assessment works. Yeah. So the most difficult part of every attribution study is always almost the first step, which is we have done this study and all the studies that we have done with world weather attribution, we do because people are affected by flooding, by inundation, or be it through impacts on agriculture or food insecurity or something that affects society. But from that, you need to go back to something that is actually happening in the climate that you can measure with observed weather data and with climate models. So the first question is always what has actually happened in terms of the meteorological event? So what led to the flooding? So in the case of, of Pakistan, it was that the whole monsoon season was extremely wet. So that was basically from June to September. But then in particular, towards the end, there were very heavy short-term rainfall events, in particular in the region of Sindh and Balochistan, which were most worst affected. And so to sort of the answer the question, what's the role of climate change in these floods? We first need to go back to the rainfall and then think about, okay, what aspect of the rainfall has actually led to the impacts? And so we looked at two different ways of characterizing this event. So one is the whole uh, monsoon season, and the other one is the heavy rainfall in September only in the area of Balochistan and Sindh. And so then the next step is we look at observed weather data and see, first of all, what kind of event is it? Is it a one in 10 year event? Is it a one in 100 year event? And also we look at trends. So is there in the observation, do we see an increase in, in rainfall? And so for both of our events, 
we found that there was indeed an increase in the intensity of rainfall. So for the short term, it was about 75%. And for the whole monsoon season, it was about 50%. And then that's sort of just what we observe. And of course, trends and observations can be because of climate change, but they can also be because of other factors like changes in land use. So if you um, if you have a weather station that used to be on a field and is now in the middle of the city center, you will get an increase in temperature, but that is because you have changed the land surface around it and not because of anything else. And so the attribution step is basically explaining whether and to what extent these trends are because of climate change. And to do that, we need climate models. And so the next step then is to find climate models that are able to capture the kind of weather event we are interested in. Because of course, all climate models have some strengths and weaknesses and some have no decent monsoon circulation. So you would not be able to use them for this kind of study. So that's an important step to find models that are doing a good job, which was a difficult step in this. So we started with, I think, about 70 different models and then ended up being able to use eight or 10 in the end. And then you basically do the same thing that we do in the observations, look at are there any trends? We do that in the models as well. But in the models, we can know exactly what has changed. So because we know very well how many greenhouse gases have been put into the atmosphere since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we can take them out of the climate models atmospheres and so simulate the same type of weather events in a world that might have been without climate change. And then compare that with possible weather in the world that we live in today with 1.2 degrees of global warming. And the difference in these two worlds and the models is then really the role of climate change. Mm -hmm. But in the case of this Pakistan study, we found that the models didn't agree very well with how large the influence of climate change is. So almost all models showed that there is indeed an increase in the intensity, which for the short term event where we had observed a 75% increase, so the models showed on average about a 50% increase. But there were some models that didn't show an increase and some that showed a much larger one. So it's hard to exactly quantify what the role of climate change is. But of course, we don't just have the models. We also know what I said earlier, that in a warmer world, we expect rainfall to increase. So, And then we can also look at projections. So if it's even warmer, do we see similar trends? And do we see a stronger increase that also then corroborates the thesis that, yes, climate change is playing a role here. And so that's why our result is that, yes, climate change is increasing. The rainfall or has led to heavier rainfall in this flood event than it would have been otherwise, but we can't quantify it. And when you make that judgment, is that a, are you failing a statistical test or do you decide, well, we could run the mathematical machinery on this question, but we're not confident in the answer that would result? So if we would just do it based on pure statistics, in a case like this, we would say, well, climate change is not playing a role because you have these models that show no trend. But because we do have more lines of evidence than just the statistics, we sort of use always an expert judgment on the statistics. So in some cases, so for example, with, with heat waves, we always have the problem in Europe there are much, much stronger trends in the observation than the models. So we would put more weight on the observed trends than in the models, whereas in other parts of the world, parts of the US, for example, we have the opposite problem. 
that the trends are smaller than the models simulate. So you always have some additional information that we that we can use to decide which do we think that these numbers that we get out represent reality adequately or not really. So I'm I'm like totally privileged to have access to you because I've I've jotted down a dozen questions even as you walk us through that chain. But I think for our audience, one of the things that people will be familiar with is the the attribution statement regarding global average temperature increase, right? So we've detected a global average temperature increase over the past century and a half. We have a physical intuition and understanding that that would have potentially driven by greenhouse gas emissions and the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere. And you can perform a test, right? You run a series of models that don't have that CO2 increase and therefore don't have the greenhouse gas forcing increase and look at temperature. And you you run a series of models that do, and you, you're able to kind of show, not just because we can make a squiggly line of global temperature with a computer model, but also like the shape of warming in the atmosphere, right? So our audience will be probably familiar with warming of the lower atmosphere and cooling of the higher atmosphere which is consistent with our physical understanding of the greenhouse effect. Is it right to think about these kind of individual weather attribution tests as a similar process? It's just that the shape and nature of the problem changes because the effect of climate change or global climate change on regional climate is more varied in models or harder for us to understand. Observational coverage is, is less. Is the intellectual exercise basically the same, but the context just much more complicated? Yes. So the the intellectual idea is basically the same. We simulate a world with and without greenhouse gases and basically compare what's possible weather in one world compared to what's possible weather in the other world. But with global mean temperature, it's basically completely, yeah, you can use a climate model that you have sort of, that you can write the equations for on the back of your envelope and you will get a very similar result because you basically smooth out all the influence from the chaotic variability of the weather if you just average over the whole globe and in global mean temperature, whereas you have all these influences, all these local influences in it when you look at weather events. That's why it's often harder to see. But for example, with heat waves, well, sometimes it's hard to exactly quantify. You can do whatever you want with a model. You will always get much stronger heat waves with climate change than without climate change. But for other things like heavy rainfall, the changes in these types of weather events are much smaller. And for things like drought, they are really different depending on the region you're looking at. So when I give talks to a public audience and I talk about climate change over the next 30 years, right, which provided I stay healthy was the remainder of my career. One of the ways I talk about how the effects of climate change will become more extreme right? In terms of heat waves, precipitation events, more pervasive, right? So we'll start to see the effects of climate change in extremes in in more places and more frequently and more obvious. And by that, I mean, we're going to have a finer understanding of the role that climate is playing in the weather conditions and the climatological experiences that people actually have, rather than it being this like future thing where our understanding is relying mainly on projection. Is that an accurate statement? How would you amend it? I think the main thing to amend is that it's not that all weather events are getting more extreme or more intense, because we also have, if you think about cold waves, for example, there are a lot less of of these that we have now. And those that do happen are, are warmer than they would have been without climate change. So I think it's not just that we see more intense, but just we see different types of extreme events. But of course, you don't get reports on a cold wave that's not happening 
but you get reports on all the heat waves that are now happening that didn't happen before. So it feels as if everything is getting more intense. And also, of course, the things that do get more intense and more frequent actually matter in most cases more because our societies are adapted to a very, very stable climate over the last centuries. And so even the relatively small changes can have very large impacts. So quite often you have very large impacts on, on population or agriculture when actually the role of climate change is relatively small. It's maybe doubling of the, the likelihood of an event or, or something. But that, of course, makes a huge difference for a society. And also, or if you have rainfall intensity that increase by maybe 10%, but that's the 10% that makes your levy fail, then that is the 10% that make all the difference. So I think what we also see going forward and now is I think that we realize more and more what we are actually vulnerable to, because that's before climate science was basically projections of large-scale temperature changes, large-scale rainfall changes, which no one lives in large-scale averages. We live in in cities and, and villages. And so we what we are understanding now is just how vulnerable we actually are to the exact type of weather that we have been used to for the last centuries. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like this class of tools that you're working on just gives us a much finer understanding of climate as an emergent phenomenon, right? And one that people experience, right? Not a global average projection. So a couple of questions, though. I'm not even sure they're well posed, but you, you've you struck my curiosity. Europe is, as we're speaking, undergoing an, an energy crisis because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the withdrawal of Russian gas supply as part of a geopolitical contest. But a very mild fall has actually made that energy crisis less challenging because heating hasn't been as necessary as it, as it might have been in October otherwise. Can we do attribution on a mild winter? Yes, we can. We have actually done. The studies are quite a few years old, but there are a couple of studies that have looked at uh, one of them was a very mild November here in, in the UK. And the other one was a Christmas heat wave, if you like. So very high temperatures over Christmas in, in, in the Arctic Circle, which is the similar kind of question. Yes, we can do attribution studies of that. And, and actually, the climate change signal is huge. So the situation of the ocean temperatures and the pattern of ocean temperatures and pressure over the North Atlantic is so that you would usually get cold autumns in Europe, but we don't. So climate change is really completely overriding this natural predictability that we had of what would make cool autumns. So how do you think this research strain has helped you develop a more accurate vision of climate change as something that's increasing vulnerability, as something that's infecting, uh, starting to affect the daily lives or affecting the daily lives in a recognizable way of people around the world? I think for me, when I started doing this, I was thinking about climate change as a physical issue, sort of greenhouse gases, and, and then a temperature response, and then a response in the weather. So every weather event that we are looking at provides kind of a lens into society, into, into the inequalities in every society, in, in every city that, that we look at, and you see very, very strongly who gets affected by actually these changes in, in weather. And to me, it's really showing that the climate crisis is a justice crisis. So inequality is the largest driver of impacts and the largest driver of vulnerability in every society. So that's the same in London as in Durban. So it's not just a north-south thing or, or something. It's it's really in every society you you see that very strongly. And I think if you think about it, it's totally logical. And that is why we care about climate change. 
But when we talk about climate change, we always talk about global mean temperature or we compare it to an asteroid or things like that. But that's really not how climate change affects our societies. So I, I want to talk about the political implications of this kind of research, because I think they could be quite profound. But before we do, I, I just have a couple more questions of thinking through, like, how do we use this tool to get a, a clear picture of what's going on, right? So returning to this question of being a climate scientist living in the world and people asking you, you know, is the weather getting worse? As you're using these attribution tools, you know, we're not yet at the point where we're assessing every month for every region and every weather event, right? How do you guard against giving yourself a distorted picture of climate impact by event selection or event non-selection? I think event non-selection is really difficult. So the example you brought, the mild autumn, okay, that is something that we noticed this year, but mainly because of the political circumstances. Otherwise, it would not have made any headlines. So the way that we pick our events is we have developed a trigger methodology together with the Red Cross. So the colleagues at the Red Cross, they monitor the humanitarian assistance requests or the humanitarian observations of where are people suffering from what. And so we have then thresholds for different types of extreme events. So for a flood event, if there are a hundred or more fatalities, or if a million people are or more affected, or if more than 50% of the population of a country are affected, then we get a trigger from our Red Cross colleagues. And then we decide based on that and also on do we have, in principle, the right tools, how urgent it also is to do such a study. also published a study on the drought or sort of drought in West Africa, which has been ongoing for a few years. So there. Maybe you can say, okay, this is something we really want to do, but it does need to be in the next two weeks. But there's this strong heat wave that's everywhere in the press where everyone's asking lots of questions. So that's something where really a rapid study would be beneficial. So we, we try to weigh these things. And we try also, we have set ourselves the goal to, to do more studies in the global south than in the global north, just because there are so few studies in comparison. But it doesn't work perfectly. So for example, when we had the heat wave in London, where we had 40 degrees here in London, it was basically impossible not to do a study because everyone was pressing us to do a study. And it was just so much easier to do a study than to not. That's exactly the problem that, that you face, right? You're riding the bus in London and somebody's saying, ah, oh, it's really hot, climate change, am I right? And you actually get to say, well, we've studied this. It must be incredibly satisfying. <laughs> it is definitely satisfying to feel that the research that I'm doing is answering a question that people actually ask all the time. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on how this science is going to evolve over time. My rough understanding is that our ability to identify climate as a driving factor in heat waves, relatively high, right? Large precipitation events improving and also likely high. But for a lot of the other classes of weather events that people in the popular imagination associate with climate change, sometimes rationally, sometimes not, hurricanes, uh, strong wind events, tornadoes. Attribution science still has a long way to go, and we may, it may never prove a useful tool. If heat waves and precipitation are where we've made a lot of progress, what's the vanguard? What's next in terms of attribution science, in your opinion? So I think one important bit is really to figure out droughts. We need to make more progress on, on droughts because there are so many different ways to define a drought that basically, however you define it, you get a different answer. And I think to find a more common ground or better understanding of which aspects of drought and what region of the world actually lead to the impacts will help make actual progress on droughts. I think that's one thing where we have everything. We just need to do it, basically. Whereas other things, as you said, like tornadoes, 
we don't at the moment have the tools with which we would be able to do actually attribution studies on tornadoes. So I think droughts are a really big question mark. And of course, also, well, you mentioned loss and damage. So of course, in that context, extremely relevant because they have huge impacts and lasting impacts. That is one of the places where I think these tools are going to be really important for policymakers around the world to understand. We're speaking just after COP27 closed in Egypt and loss and damage was one of the main negotiation points in the formal process. And one of the outcomes of COP is that loss and damage is now incorporated. There's a there's a committee, there's going to be meetings, there, there may eventually be funds to reflect the damages that climate change is having in particularly the developing world and provide some compensation for, for those damages. So from your perspective, and I know you've written several pieces on this with colleagues on the kind of the science of loss and damage. Where do you think these tools kind of currently provide useful insights for policymakers? As an example, the floods in Pakistan were raised as a climate impact and were used as an example to support loss and damage implementation and the creation of a loss and damage fund. But the science, at least as I understand it, is relatively inconclusive on exactly the role that climate change played in that specific account. So how do you see that conversation advancing? So I think that is actually a really good example of what I think what the role of climate science, attribution science particularly, can be. Because especially in countries, in tropical countries and in countries of the global south, where you have often, on the one hand, very variable weather from year to year. So you would need much, much longer observational records than in, for example, Europe or parts of the US to actually detect even trends. But at the same time, it's the part of the world where the records are shorter, not longer. So you have these these two effects that make it more difficult to do conclusive attribution studies in the global south. So I think what attribution studies should definitely not be is sort of a prerequisite for loss and damage funds to be handed out in individual events, because that would hugely disadvantage the global south and then make the whole loss and damage idea completely pointless. But of course, you also don't want a loss and damage mechanism that's completely scientific evidence-free. So I think where attribution science is really important is informing and what are the types of events where climate change does play a role and therefore help to sort of establish, okay, if in, in these countries that have high vulnerability, these are these types of events happen, then we release funds. That, I think, is where attribution science and, and also the evidence that we have can provide useful information, but not as an automatism or as a prerequisite, because I think that would be really ethically completely wrong. Help, help me understand that a little bit. What is the reason why you get an inversion of loss and damage? I'm sorry, I, I might have missed your statement, but using it as a precondition is not necessarily helpful because why? Because you have much easier detectable signals in the global north. And that is on the one hand, because if you take, for example, rainfall in the UK and compare it to rainfall in Pakistan. So in the UK, you have more or less the same amount of rainfall every year. It varies sort of from day to day a lot. It varies maybe also from month to month, but from year to year it doesn't vary very much. And also you have the longest records of weather in the UK. So it's very, very easy 
to detect any changes in sort of rainfall intensities in the UK. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Pakistan, you always have had also with a natural climate every maybe 10 years or five years or roughly very wet years, but then you have lots and lots of very dry years. So the difference between individual years is really high. So that means it's much harder to see any changes in that year-to-year variability. And at the same time, you also have shorter records in countries for the global south. So even if you have strong climate change signals, they're much harder to detect. And so therefore, it would disadvantage the global south if that would be a prerequisite. So, and this is also where you get this mixture of sort of the hazard identification and the challenge that you talked about earlier, which is like a lot of your understanding has changed toward understanding vulnerability and relative vulnerability mixed with the geography of an individual place by accident of history or of physics just may make it harder to do climate attribution. And so if you set a prerequisite. Yes. And I think there is, in addition, there's also not just accident of history, but also, of course, colonialism that has actually led in in Pakistan is it's again a really good example that one reason why the floods are so devastating is because the water management system in the Indus River was built under the British Empire as a prestige engineering project that was to make the emperor happy and not designed to actually be useful to manage the water. But that's still the water management system that is in place. And so you have these two effects. On the one hand, you have that the countries of the global north are disproportionately responsible for causing climate change, but they are also, at least in a lot of former colonies, responsible for some of the the high vulnerability. So therefore, I think you cannot, in loss and damage, just pretend it's a purely physical problem. Right. Yeah. And I hear that. That's a very clear explanation, by the way. Thank you. What role does attribution science play in the adaptation? So if you think about the understanding that you've gleaned, how do you think about using this kind of analysis to inform how countries plan for future impacts of climate change? Is it useful at all or is it only a backward looking device? No, I think it is It is really useful. And it is useful in that, as I said earlier, that it provides this lens into how societies deal with weather extremes. So if you take another example, where we have done recently a study, which is on heavy rainfall in Nigeria that led to large-scale flooding. So one reason for these very large floods was that there is a, a dam in the Benue River, which is a river that flows into the Niger River. And that dam was broken because the water level was so high. And in the original design, there was supposed to be a second dam to catch that water, but that has never been built. And so now with climate change, these situations where these dam breaks are have actually increased a lot. So there you could see, well, one immediate adaptation step would be to actually build this second dam. Whereas in other situations, you find that, for example, early warning systems have existed, but people, so in Germany, there was a very large scale flooding in 2021, and there's no early warning. So the Met services knew there were floods, but there was no system in place that this information would get from the Met services to actually the people who live there where the floods were occurring. And even if they heard there's going to be flooding, they had no idea what to do with that information. There was no plan on evacuation and so on. And so that, you would say in Germany, that's the most important first adaptation step you need. Because these attribution studies really identify how weather and vulnerability interact, 
it helps prioritizing adaptation. If you can make a brief forecast to close our podcast, how do you think this science is going to influence or how would you like to see it influence the world 10 years from now as global warming has continued and the effects of climate change are, are probably increasing, at least in some places? Is this going to be a tool that we use in insurance? Will it inform how we think about loss and damage, adaptation? What are the things that you think it can be really most useful for? So I would hope that in 10 years from now, we would have operational attribution services provided by weather services or the WMO so that we would do this on a routine basis so that we would we would get to something like an inventory of the impacts of climate change because at the moment we are very very far away from that we have an inventory of emissions we have a task force of how to measure emissions but everyone who does impacts of climate study does it in a very different way when you look at the ipcc it's a complete mess there are lots and lots of studies that you cannot compare with each other because there's no agreement on how how to define events how to look at this what levels and I think if we had more of that... Sorry to interrupt, but it seems like a lot of information that you're able to identify gets lost when you start taking global averages or sort of smoothed over in a way that creates dissonance, right? So we see the effects of climate change in a lot of individual weather events, but like global statements about precipitation are pretty heavily qualified still in IPCC documents. Yes. And I think if we would do these studies on an operational way, it would sort of close this gap that we at the moment have with adaptation is local, but climate science is global. And we would be able to bring these together in lots and lots of instances and then also see what are the adaptation measures that would be applicable maybe globally and so that we could learn much more from different places than is possible at the moment where there's just no, there's just no way to compare these studies and these measures. That's super interesting. That'd be cool. We can have a dashboard, right? You can kind of track the emergence of climate change as it's happening in a new way. Thank you so much for joining us. I actually really enjoyed talking with you and getting a better grip of the state of the science. And in particular, I leave thinking a little more carefully around not just this being a tool for physical understanding, but understanding its connection to vulnerability and the human uncertainties associated with how we grapple with weather and climate. I, I didn't realize that there was as much information there as, as you've said. Thanks to Freddie for joining us this week and explaining her work on climate change attribution. We really encourage you to check out her research. In our show notes, you will find links to her book, Angry Weather, Heat Waves, Floods, Storms, and the New Science of Climate Change, and to other recent studies from World Weather Attribution. And you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.